I've shared this with you before, um, but it's just good to remind you of how um, normal your pastor is. Maybe I'm not normal. Maybe I'm just abnormal. Um, that, that could be a better description of me. But, but when I was growing up, I was scared of the dark. And I've, I've shared that with you before. Um, but as, um, as I grew up, I, I was still kind of scared of the dark into my teenage years and even early in my early 20s. And I just want to tell you, there's nothing harder than being scared of the dark and being an associate pastor in a church. When you're like the low man on the totem pole at a church, you're the person that they're called, you know, at like all times to say, hey, we need you to go up to the church to do dot, dot, dot. If it's, you know, a door was left unlocked or, you know, something needs to be done. Or, and I couldn't tell you how many times my pastor or one of the staff members or somebody at the church said, hey, Jared, you're the youth pastor. Will you just go up to the church and just take care of this real quick? We need this to be done to get ready for, you know, filling up the baptistry or whatever. And there is nothing scarier, I don't know if you've ever been in one before, than being in an old, dark church by yourself. Have you ever been in that situation before? It freaks me out. You would think that being in a church, you'd be like, I'm not afraid. I mean, it's the house of God, right? You know, it's, this is like a place where I worship and connect with God. You should not be afraid. But for some reason, when I would walk into our church in Donovan, Missouri, this old building, it would freak me out. Now, there was, like, the door that I normally came in, there was, like, a long hallway of classrooms and no light switch on that side of the door coming in. You had to make it all the way to the other end of the hallway to get to that light switch to flip it on. And I, I would do, like, the walk. Have you ever done the walk before? Well, you start out really brave, and you're really slow, and you're like, hey, there's nothing going on here. I'm not afraid. And then as you get past that first dark, scary door, the walk kind of speeds up a little bit. The hairs on your arm, I'm kind of getting goosebumps right now thinking about the past. Um, your goosebumps kind of start popping up. You're just like, somebody's watching. Something's going on here. And the walk kind of just becomes a little bit of a shuffle. And next thing you know, you're like sprinting down the church hallway to get to the other end to flip on the switch so you don't. Anybody do that other than me? It's, it doesn't have to be in a church. It's, oh yeah, sorry. <laughs> It would, it would freak me out. It would absolutely freak me out. Now, here's the thing. Maybe you'll have to help me remember when this happened. I don't remember if it was post-baby or pre-baby. When I was, um, not only am I scared of the dark, but my wife, she's not a big fan of it either. Um, she's actually gets freaked out more than I do. And um, I had this funny idea, which I thought was funny, that I would stand in my closet. Was this post or pre? Pre or post-baby? You don't remember. Let's just say, either way, at the end of pregnancy or at the beginning of the baby, your fight or flight mode is a little bit different, right? And so I was—I had this funny idea that I would stand in my dark closet and with the door cracked open, and when my wife, she was doing something, she had to go into the living room, that I would just go, oh, whenever she walked by my dark, it was before the baby? Yeah. And so I just thought I would just go, and uh, scare, or not really scare, but just be like, you know, be funny with my wife. Well, I did that. She was walking by. It was dark. It was at night. We were watching a television show that was a little bit scary. I don't remember which one it was. And I went, and she went, and like forearm shiver punched that door with me standing right beside it. The door in my forehead made a resounding boom. I was like, ugh. She was like, babe, what are you doing? And then she began to, like, chew me out for, like, freaking her out. And I was like, I'm about to pass out here. This was not 
And she said, aren't you proud of me? I was like, no, I'm not proud of you. You thought I'd be afraid, but I was like, Osha! no one's going to get my baby. Osha! Forearm shiver right to the forehead. Let me tell you, life lesson learned. Here's the deal. In the dark, it can be cold. The dark can be scary. The dark, it can be really hard to find your way. And it's true in life. Have you ever felt the dark before? You ever felt like you were struggling to see what was right in front of you? You ever felt like scared or insecure or all the alone season in your life. Have you ever been in one of those moments where you just kind of wish I had a question? I really wish I had some light in my life when it gets dark. These I am statements of Jesus, he's revealing who he is. And he's revealing what he came to do on this earth. And this is what he says, a beautiful verse, John 8, 12. You pull out your notes. I want you to read the underlying, underlying part with you when we get to it. It says, when Jesus spoke again to the people, he said this. Are you ready? Say, well, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light. Say those first things with me again. I am the light of the world. It's a simple statement. It has powerful implications. And that's what we're talking about. But Jesus says, I am the light of the world. What does that mean for us? What does that mean for every single one of us? The first thing is this. Jesus is the light of the world. That means we need to turn it for hope. We need to turn it for hope. As a pastor, one of my responsibilities is to read some of the great theologians in this world. And um, study and learn from them. One of the great theologians I like to read from time to time is a gentleman by the name of Charles Schultz. Anybody recognize that name? He actually wrote the Peanut Cartoons, um, which are, have some incredible pieces of theology in it. I want to show you a cartoon that I found once. This is what it says. This is Linus and, and Lucy sitting there. And, um, and Lucy says, go get me a glass of water. Linus says, why should I do anything for you? You never do anything for me. And if you know anything about the comics, right? She is constantly picking on and making his life miserable, right? And she says this. She says, well, on your 75th birthday, I'll bake you a cake. As Linus goes to get the glass of water, he says, life is more pleasant when you have something to look forward to. Isn't that right, though? Isn't life just simply better when we have something to look forward to, when we have hope. The truth is that sometimes we find ourselves in a lot of places in life that seem to overwhelm us and it feels dark in life and we get to these places where we just feel like we don't have have any hope. And when we get there, that's when we can lean back to this passage where Jesus is saying, to those who don't have hope, who feel in the dark, he's saying this directly to us when he says, I am the light of the world. I mean, think about the statement that Jesus is saying. And the thing is, is that he can back it up. Jesus has the greatest power that we've ever known on this earth. Only the power that only we has. And so when you find yourself in a hopeless place, know Jesus 
Jesus can heal. Jesus can heal. Jesus can heal. When your relationships are broken, when you're going through financial difficulty, Jesus can Isaiah 9 2. It's a prophecy about Jesus to come. He says, The people walking in darkness deep in great light. On those living in the deep darkness, a light has been. Can you picture it? And this, this, this verse pulls up a mental picture in my head of people just shuffling through light in this deep darkness, this land of darkness, and this light of the love of Jesus just shining on them, showing them. Carl Yarborough wrote an article about when he was attending the University of Wisconsin football game on October 16, 1982. They were playing that day and they were actually losing to Michigan State, one of their rivals. And just after, um, it, was, it was one of those moments in the game where they just he just felt like Wisconsin just didn't show. You know, have you ever watched a sports game? You're just like, the team didn't even show up. They're not even acting like they care. They're standing on the sidelines. There's no energy. There's no excitement. Nothing's happening, and they're getting beat by Michigan State. And he's at the point in the game where he's just like, this could get really ugly if something just doesn't turn around. It's going to get really bad because the team is just showing no life and no energy and no effort. And the crowd, equally, the whole first half wasn't into it either. I mean, it was just a really, really poor game. He said somewhere in the second half, something really strange happened. The game was really terrible. Wisconsin was playing. They were the home team, and they weren't showing any kind of energy, showing any kind of life. Nothing exciting happened on the field. But all of a sudden, everybody on the home side, home team section, just erupted into this crazy celebration. Like, woo, just going nuts. And he's watching the game on the field, and he was like, what are they happy about? I mean, there's not, I mean, we're getting beat by Michigan State. Our team is playing terrible. They're showing no energy, no life, no excitement. Yet our crowd is going crazy excited like we had just won the game. And they had just won the game. Just not this game. He had realized that the vast majority of the audiences they were watching the college football game had those little transistor radio earplugs in and they were listening to the Milwaukee Brewers game four of the World Series against the St. Louis Cardinals, where they were down 2-1, and they had just won the tie of the series. And that was what the crowd was celebrating. 70 miles down the road. This crowd was celebrating that He said, man, that preached. He said, that preached. He says, when I started thinking about life, what I've gone through, sometimes I find myself in a mess. Sometimes how it looks in the moment, it doesn't look good. But I know down the road, there's a
truth is, is that if Jesus is alive and all that he wants, he wants to guide us through our lives. If you truly believe what the scripture says in Psalms, that, that you were knit together in your mother's womb, that God created you in your inmost being, if you really believe those things, then one of the things that you have to believe is that God really does have a plan for your life. And as you listen to all the voices in this world that are trying to tell you how you're supposed to live and what your life's supposed to be like and what you're supposed to do, what you need to do is you need to start beginning to drown out all those other voices and begin to listen to the voice of God. Because what I know is that God may have some plans for you that, that aren't quite on your radar. Greg was in the ninth grade. It's going to be the same as early 60s, so whenever you're in the grade He's going, he's going to the high school. And uh, in, in his district, 7th, 8th, and 9th grade, which you were high, and 10th, 11th, and 12th, for high school, anybody came to a high school like that. Um, that was what his school district was like. And uh, going, he's from somewhere in the Midwest, and uh, as he was going into high school, um, from the 9th grade to the 10th grade, you had to meet with a counselor and your parents to determine which track go on in high school. There were basically two different tracks you could go on. There was um, like, kind of like a pre-college track where you would take college classes, high school classes that would prepare you for college. And then there was a vocational track for those that, that didn't really see themselves going the college route but saw themselves just going into like more manual labor or factory work or following the family business. And so you would go down this vocational track if you didn't really want to do college track, and, and he says that he was meeting with his parents, and this counselor, and his parents, and the counselor looked at his parents, and they said, well, which track would you like your son to go to? kind of need to decide now before the next school year, so he can decide to all his classes. He said his parents looked at each other, and he said, well, we really think that Greg is college material, and we want him to be prepared to do the college track. And the counselor just kind of sat back in his seat. So I, you know, I really have to tell you that I don't think your son's smart enough. And if we look at his grades and how he, you know, that he pulled in junior high, uh, we re- I really don't think he has what it takes to take the three college courses here in high school. And more than likely, if he does, he's going to fail them because your son simply doesn't have the IQ system. Greg said he was destined, crushed, spirit just broken. Somebody broke him. Decided that his son should take the great college track. And he graduated high school. He went to college, he got his bachelor's of science, and later got his master's degree, and then his doctorate. He became a pastor, eventually became a state pastor, and then became the founding person of Health and Growing Churches that supports churches all around the world, and helps them grow and No one has the right to define you except the God who created you. 
They're going to tell you the direction or the quality or the person they think you are or could be or should be in the future. And I'm going to say they're not the God of the They don't have the right to speak that to your life. Christ says, I'm the right. So if you do listen to I want you to read the first part with me. It's really clear. He says, For I know the plans I have for you. This is God's speaking. He says, I know the plans I have for you. And these are the plans that he says, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. This is God giving a declarative statement that I know the plans I have for you and they were for good. And there for hope, and there for a great future. Ephesians 2.10, Paul writes this way. He says, For we are God's masterpiece. Look at the person next to you and say, You are God's masterpiece. Say it. Say it like you mean it. Now, I don't want you to say, Now, you're a piece of work. That's not what I want you to say. I want you to say, You are God's Masterpiece. Listen to what Paul goes on to say. He says, He has created us anew in Christ Jesus so we can do the good things He planned for us long ago. When I looked in the mirror this morning, masterpiece is not what I had in mind. Maybe I'm maybe a Picasso. You've seen a Picasso all jumbled up. That didn't mean this morning. Um, and I, and I have a plan for you. And it's not some shoddy plan that I'm making up on them. But I had this plan out long ago when you were up to fill it and you were going to One of my great joys in ministry, other than being in Christ, is helping you with this plan. Watching that plan unfold, the life, the passion, the energy. But Jesus is the light of the world, and that means we need to let him guide you and make decisions. How many of you have ever, like me, have ever discovered that when you try to take control of your life, you, you end up in the wrong place? Anybody? November 1976, there were 75 prisoners in Saltillo, Saltillo. Mexico prison. They had this genius idea that they were going to tunnel out, and they worked together for over six months to create this tunnel to get out of prison. And on April 6, 1977, finally came the day when they were going to break through the ground and enter into freedom, but they weren't. Because what they didn't know is they weren't actually tunneling to freedom. They tunneled into the courthouse directly next to the prison where many of them were sentenced themselves to go to prison. They were caught, they were thrown back in prison, and their sentences axed out for trying to escape. They thought they had a plan. They thought they had a direction. You know, when I try to make my own decisions in my lab, I don't know about you. I have to be convinced to make a mess of things. So here's just a few thoughts of that about making decisions. One, seek Jesus before you decide. Seek him before you decide. Proverbs 19.3 says this, People ruin their lives by their own foolishness 
and then they're angry at the Lord. Have you ever done that before? You make a decision, you do something that doesn't work out, and then you're angry at God for it not working out the way you wanted it to. How can you let this happen to me, God? How? And we're asking God to clean up our messes instead of speaking to us in the beginning and leaning into Him to find out what He wants us to do before we do it. There was a teacher in Michigan who was contacted by a guy um, who was asking her to invest you know, money into this scheme that he had. It wasn't a scheme, he called it an investment. And, uh, and he was a really smooth talker, and he talked her into investing everything that she had, and she gave him all her, her retirement. And, um, and then a couple weeks later, she hadn't heard from him, so she called the telephone number that she called before, and the line was disconnected. And she went to the office that she went to before, and the office was empty. And she realized that she had been scammed. She went to the Better Business Bureau, and she said, I don't understand. I don't, I'm, not sure, I'm not sure what happened then with this investment. She began to tell this gentleman the story. He said, I just wish you would have talked to us beforehand because you're not the first person to scam on this guy. Why didn't you ask for help? Why didn't you come to us? We could have checked them out before you gave them all your money. That's what we're here for. We're here to help you on the front end instead of the back end. Why didn't you ask us for help? And she said, he said this. It's pretty shocking. It's not really. She said, I was afraid you'd tell me wrong. I was too big of a truth. I was too big of a truth. I was afraid of this. You see, sometimes we want to do what we want to do, and we ask God to The better way to do is to say, God, what are your blessings? What are your blessings? We need to seek you before we decide on the same cause. We need to wait for the answers. How many of you are like the ready fire angel? You're just ready to go. Ready fire angel. What am I? What am I doing? How many of you have ever discovered that that the God has a different timetable than you? Sometimes God takes a little bit longer than you think. We need to be comfortable waiting for His answer. Psalms 27:14 says this: Wait, patient. This is be brave and courageous because here's the thing is that waiting sometimes is really hard and scary. So be brave and courageous. Yes, wait patiently for the Lord. Chinese bamboo trees. You don't know how they go. When they're planting their plants, they will grow with a small shoot on the apple. And you just water them. You water those little things. Um, sometimes you water them for over a year and you fertilize and you water it. And at the end of the year, there's still just a bulb with a little shoot. And then the second year, you water and you fertilize. And after the second year, they can just be this little shoot. And year three and year four. And then sometime around year four or five or six, something clicks inside of that little bulb, that little shoot of bamboo. And in 90 days, they can grow 90 feet. Think about that. A tree, a bamboo shoot that grows 90 feet in 90 now here's the thing. What's crazy about how fast they grow is that while you think there's nothing going on, there's something about that plant that's gathering everything it needs to grow. And it's absorbing those nutrients and that water. And for some reason, at some moment, there's something inside of it that just clicks. He says, now's the time. Now's the time. Now's the time to grow. And I want to say it's the same thing. Sometimes when we're weighing decisions and we're waiting and we're talking to God and it feels like God is doing nothing. The truth is, is that He is working. He's working in us. He's working 
situations that he's working in around us and he's preparing. And, 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 and at some point, at some moment, at some place, decisions we have to obey when he gives you the Jeremiah 7 13 I think sounds like me from time to time. It says while you were doing all these things declares the Lord I spoke to you again and again but you did not listen. So all the wisdom of God is all you listen. Here's what I spoke Jesus is the light of the world. And don't just see it. See, when God was creating this universe, He created two great lights. He created one great light to rule the day and one great light to rule the night. And the light of the day He called the sun, and the light of the night He called the moon. Right? The question I have for you this morning is does the moon produce any light on its own? No. What is the moon? That's what Jesus had in mind. When he said this in Matthew 14 and 15, he said, You are the light of the world. Like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, the lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. He said, We'll never be as brilliant as the sun. But if you've ever seen a full moon on a dark night, it can give a lot of light. And in this dark, this dark world that we live in, we are alive in Christ Jesus. A friend of mine, Steve Southern, is a pastor in Salem, Ohio. A few years ago, um, he had an opportunity to go on a hunting trip in Ohio. Steve is um, he's a he's good looking, muscular, athletic high-energy guy, and uh, he loves to go hunting, he loves the outdoors, and the guy in his church decided to bless him with a trip of a lifetime to Kodiak, Alaska. And he paid for everything for Steve to go, and they were going to go hunt deer on this island, this island of Kodiak, Alaska, right? And uh, Steve was psyched. He was pumped. He got everything prepared, his tents, his sleeping bag. Here's the deal. They were going to drop them off in a float plane for five days, and they hunt for five days, and the float plane comes back and picks them up and takes them home. He said, after a couple of days, the excitement began to wear off, because honestly, it's just really tough hunting. He says, it's hard. It was exhausting. It rains almost every day in that part of Alaska. It's a rainforest, and so they were constantly wet, raining around them. He said, it he said it was just, uh, the terrain was just crazy, incredible, hard, climbing up slick rocks and mountains. And he says, I was just exhausted all the time. I was wet all the time. It was just hard. He said, the hardest thing about it, even though it's beautiful scenery, is that it was full of bears. I mean, it's Kodiak, Alaska, right? Kodiak, Alaska has Kodiak bears. It was frightening. He said, it was the time that they were there, the salmon were running in the lakes and the streams. He just said it was, it was scary. He said, honestly, we saw more bears than we saw deer. It was, and if you've ever been in one of those situations, he said it's like you're living hyper-vigilant all the time. And when you're hyper-vigilant all the time, it is 
exhausted. So I was worn out. He said, honestly, by the third day, that night, I had, I had put up my tent in a hurry, and it rained all night long, and I woke up, and my sleeping bag was soaked. He said, I was miserable, and I just wanted to go home, and I just wanted to see my wife. I just wanted, I was very thankful for the opportunity, but I was over it to get the picture, right? Day five comes, hiking back down the mountain with almost 200 pounds of deer meat on various backs. And, and they get down close to the lake where the float plane is going to pick them up. And he said he rounded a corner where he couldn't see around it, and they ran smack dab into a huge bear. He says one of those moments where it was just like, something's going to go down. He said, somebody's going to die. You know, and, and he said, I was terrified. He said, luckily, the bear was just as scared as I was. And after like a standoff for one second, the bear turned around and booked it. But he said, if I wasn't done by then, he said, now I'm over this thing. I'm thinking, I just want to go home. And they stood by that lake. And they stood by that lake. They stood by that lake. And the plane never showed up. They were like, oh my gosh. What's happening? They pulled out the radio and called the operator. The dispatch was organizing the planes. And they just said, don't I'm really sorry. But another group has had an accident. Your plane is going to pick them up and take them back. It's going to be a while before it can be tomorrow. Next day, it could be two or three days before we get to you. We're sorry. He seems to say, you've got to be kidding. He said, I was in a place where I was crying. He said, we just looked at each other. He said, I felt like a walking buffet. You know, we got all this gear on us, and we start walking back up the mountain. Just, just depressed. He said they were setting up with their tents. He says it was dark out. He was looking up at the sky about by this mountain. And he was just having one of those moments with God. He was like, God, I just want to be gone. I want to be here anymore. Please, just, just get us out of here. And as he was watching up by this mountain, one of the lights, the stars that he thought he was looking at, just started getting bigger and bigger. And it dawned on him. So he looked at his buddy and they basically ran down that mountain. They got to the lake and the plane pulled up, you know, was waiting on him while they got there. And, and, the, and the pilot came out and he just said, Guys, I'm really sorry about what happened. He said, I was listening on the radio on the other line because I couldn't respond. He said, But I was just really worried about you. I knew that, that you had all this fear of me. A dangerous place that wasn't safe for me to continue to stay here. And so he said, I just decided to fly straight to the line to come and make you miserable. Steve said, it's probably the happiest that he'd ever been. What did a hug that I mean? He said, it was the most welcome sight he'd ever seen. And then it as a pastor. He went through speaking to his heart. He said, I realize that every day of my life, I'm surrounded by people who are scared, who are trapped. There are people who are looking for hope, direction, for someone who can help them. Not in the place that they are. 
amazing that Jesus had most of his amazing encounters with people. He wasn't in a synagogue. He wasn't in a temple. He was in every day Bow your heads. We're just going to have a moment together just for a second. The question I have for you, this is between me, you, and the Lord, so I know you're afraid for this people here. But how many of you would just be willing to say with your eyes closed and your heads bowed, just, just by slipping up a hand, how many of you would be willing to say that you just need a little bit of That you're in the middle of some stuff and that today that you just need God to be Maybe some of you in this room are just saying, I need direction. I need to find that life direction, and, and I think God is speaking, but I'm really not so sure what he's trying to say to me, and the fact is, is I'm a little bit scared. How many of you be willing to say that to me? I just need a little direction in that life. Maybe this morning you just say, I, I need some wisdom. I really need some guidance in making some of the most important decisions in my life, and I just want God's help before I decide to not have it. And I just need the courage and the bravery, like the scripture says, to wait patiently into the sweetness. Lastly, how many of us in this room can identify some people in our lives that are lost in the dark? scared, and they need the light of Christ, and you realize today that you can be that light.